following presentation was recorded live by the Jewish Ethics Institute. Is uh, the question we'd like to address is the question of when you have science, or in our case, medicine, but it's really a question for all science, we'll focus on the medicine part, and Torah don't jive together. When current uh, science doesn't seem to fit with our, either what the Torah says, or or what the rabbis say, or etc., or both, or nobody. So how does that work? Meaning how, as uh, someone who, and I'm not judging anyone here, someone who believes in that the Torah was given by God, um, so how does that work? I mean, how do you coincide science and God? It's a general question. Um, and more specifically, as we'll see in our Parsha, the Parsha might seem to imply that the rabbis, that you need to listen to rabbis too, which is even more problematic, because rabbis aren't God. So listening to God, okay, maybe, you know, that maybe God can override science, but to have rabbis override science, that's a bigger issue. It's a very controversial topic in general, and, and it's not only in contemporary times that we struggled with this, but this struggle has been going on for thousands of years. Um, so, so I want to address it first today, probably just more of putting it into context, the questions and the introduction, and then hopefully by the, ne- the next two weeks. Again, we're going to focus mostly on the <coughs> medical aspects, but there are many, many sides to it. We're not getting into evolution. I'm not going there. I don't know enough about it. Um, and But there is, I mean, uh, of course there's answers to all these questions. Um, to meaning even to make, I've never actually there so far haven't come to any, I haven't come across any s- contradiction in the Torah or Talmud to science that has not been able to be answered in itself, to make them work, to make them drive. I once mentioned here, actually, it, it all started, just to give you some background, we had a class here approximately, I don't know, maybe it was eight, nine years ago, about, um, I don't know if anyone remembers this, about, there was a group of students, the, the Talmud talks about when you when you don't go to the bathroom, you hold it in, it's not good for your health, it can cause infertility and, and men, etc. So we, the Talmud brings a story of a certain rabbi who gave class, I don't remember this, and everyone in the class, um, they, he would give a very long shear, for hours upon hours, and people in the class would, uh, all the students had a certain emission, a green emission. Remember that? No, I'm surprised I don't remember it. It's just bizarre <laughs> and, enough to uh, remember. Do you remember it? make a long story short, the, 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 the everyone in the class was saying, and we even called Dr. Fishman, who's the urologist, he said green emi- the only green emission is syphilis. It means that everyone was saying they all shared one breath. Conorrhea, actually. Conorrhea, whatever. All the same to me. I'm a rabbi. I'm just what I know about science. So anyway, and, and Dr. Fishman confirmed it, and everyone was very upset. So I happened to, uh, maybe a week later or so, I was in New York at a wedding. I met this very great scholar. I know, know science also. And I asked him the question that everyone had, had and he basically told me that it's, uh, even though the word yorok is translated as green, he can he showed me, he said there are f- at least nine other places in the Talmud where yorok is translated as yellow. So the mission was yellow, and it's not a contradiction. He explained to me, according to uh, medicine. So, and he told me at that time, he said there are, he found, I believe he said, there are 96 places in the Talmud that he's found to contradict science, and he has an answer for every one. So he told me, he said, anytime you have a question, call me. If you find any contradiction in the Talmud, he said, I've, I've answered it, according to science. That's what he told me at the time. So his answer in this In this particular case was, your rock doesn't mean green, it's trans- So the it simple yellow. answer is, they didn't mean green, even though that's what the word means. No, he showed me. It means in yellow. Clearly, the, he said he has nine other places in the Talmud where the word your rock is translated so as yellow, not why green. would a yellow emission even be noteworthy? Who care themselves? They say in class too no, long. No, it doesn't mean urine. It means something different emission, and the question is what it was. I mean, it was some sign of of illness. The old joke about the toilet seat. <laughs> Where you got it? What joke? No. <laughs> Where you got this Yeah. Well, I don't know what a yellow emission. Anyway, whatever is. it is, the point yeah. is <laughs> look, that. The point is that not there urine. are many things. When I spoke, we subsequently spoke to Dr. Fishman. He said, and he came to the class. If I remember. He said there are many, this was still in Maine, South Maine. 
he said there are many different uh, yellow missions. Yellow can mean many different things. And he, he said it's a list just, of things. Just that kind of answer is kind of sounds weak, but oh, no, it's not weak. Okay. He, the point was, you guys had a question. It doesn't fit with science. It means they had to have a sexually transmitted disease if it was green, because there's only one thing that's green. Maybe it was green. He's saying it's not a contradiction. No, Yorok, maybe, maybe the word Yorok, he showed me, maybe there means no yellow, not green. Maybe there's no contradiction. No, maybe no, it no, was no. green and they all had gonorrhea. No, he's showing me <laughs> that is a possibility. So that's, the there's is, no contradiction. That would be bothersome that you had a whole... That they all sex with the same prostitutes? Yes, that would be very or bothersome that's to me. It might not be reality. bothersome to you. It <laughs> might not be bothersome to you, it's bothersome to me. That's sort of like a priest so molesting he, a child. Who would do that? I mean, the point is... I have to edit the class. Yeah. The point is I that, like the uh, green <laughs> that, uh, that he was saying there's other possibilities now. Does that mean? <coughs> I don't know. But meaning right. the point is Yorok does not mean green. We assume in modern Hebrew much of our or maybe it on, does. No, but it doesn't. He proved to me that it doesn't and in the Talmud. It's, it's like saying that nine other places in the Talmud where it's clearly yellow. Get over it. No, the, the Talmud explains, describes the color, and compares. So we know what it is. I, as an uh, ignoramus, didn't know that, but he did. That's my point. My point is. So you're saying yellow anyway, in the entire when I Bible there, means not in the Bible, in the yellow. Talmud. The Talmud. I don't even know if the word comes up. But, uh, right, now I need to look is, it up. One second. Let me. The, my, you're missing my point. The point well, I'm, here I'm, is the point is that I don't like now his we're not repeating that class. We, 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 that will take another few years to repeat that. Class. Uh, the point is that whenever you have a contradiction. Well, seeming contradiction between science and the Torah, such as evolution, which we're not going to get into, there are many ways to explain that they do. Science can jive with the Talmud and Torah, even though on the surface they might seem to contradict each other. Yeah. Science one has the same problem. When Rosalind Yalo first discovered that there were antibodies to hormones, which led to her discovery and Nobel Prize-winning work from radio assay. When she submitted the article for publication in scientific journals, she said, and I've demonstrated their antibodies to injected hormones, or given hormones. The author, the editorial refused to let her use the word antibody because they simply didn't believe her. Even though it was, so they made her change the word to accept the paper, they made her change the word to globulin. Oh, and this is science. The same thing as the Iroke thing. It's saying, because uh, even though she was 100% right. You're the point. The point is, in general, what we're saying is, I've never found, at this point in my Ron's life, I've never found the contradiction between science and Talmud that can't be answered at this point. Could be there are some. We'll talk about um, some of them, actually. Okay, so so the first thing is, I'd like to start with the verses in the parsha. This week's parsha is parsha Shoftim. What's the name? Jimmy. Jimmy, have some caffeine. Good uh, stuff. You can't miss this stuff. Have some I caffeine. Quiet from him. Yeah. Well, That's well, the table. Okay. sleeping side of the table. Um, so, the, the, the verses in Pasha Shoftim are like this. So this week's Pasha, the, the beginning of Pasha deals with the uh, point of the monarchy. It's a whole different issue. And then it moves on to the Betin. Shoftim, by the way, the translation of the word Shoftim, which is the name of this week's Pasha, is Judges. Okay, and, the t and the, it says like this. Starting in the middle here, but we always start in the middle. It says like this, Ki Pale, I'll read the Hebrew, the first, this is the first four verses, not in the Pasha, this is the, f just, I start, this is verse 8 in the second chapter of the Pasha. It says, Ki Pale Mimcha Davar La Mishpat, when you have a matter that uh, eludes you, from the word Pele, Pele means a wonderment, something that you don't know the answer to, Bein Dam Lidam, between blood and blood, that means, I guess, let's say it's a question of killing. Someone's on trial for murder, and you don't know how to, Ruled, there's not enough evidence, whatever the case is. OJ, between judgment and judgment, between lesion and lesion. As we know, the, the, the whole Pasha of Tzarat, which is the Kohenim, had to define the uh, quote unquote leprosy, which really isn't leprosy, but some type of skin uh, spiritual ailment was defined by the Kohen. And not always was it exact, it's not an exact science. So uh, so you don't know the, what it is. So. Divrei revos bisharecha, or dispute, any standard dispute, small claims dispute. In those days, they would go to the betin. Bisharecha, in your gates, in your cities. That means obviously, uh, well, the question if you're not living in Israel, is this obligation to apply to go to a betin? The kamta ve'alita alamakom, you shall rise wherever you are in Israel and go to the place. The place that God has chosen, which we know 
course, is the Temple Mount. That's where the Sanhedrin sat in what's called the Lishchat, Lishkat, or Lishchat Hagazit. It's a hoon stone. It was like a cave on the Temple Mount. Um, the cave is supposedly still there today, underground. Um, and this is where the Sanhedrin sat. The Sanhedrin consisted of 71 judges. And you would take all your disputes there. Of course, there were low courts. But when it comes to play a point where, just like in our uh, justice system, when the lower courts ruled and there's an appeal, or whatever the case is, or they didn't, weren't able to rule, so of course you go to Sanhedrin. Um, okay, so that's what it's talking about. So what happens, says the Torah continues, Come to the Levitic Kohanim, they translate here, which because, as we know, Kohanim come from the tribe of Levi. They weren't the judges, that was specifically for what was mentioned about the Tzaras. Saras, you went to a Kohen, not to a judge. So the Torah mentioned lesions. So it says, you come to the Kohen, the Kohen Levi, Shofet, and to the judge, and these are key words here, Asher that is in your days. And Rashi points out very nicely here, we don't have it on the sheet, but many people, as we know, and we're not getting into today's American leadership, we're not going there, but just as we know, uh, as the generations move on in political leadership, as in our country, and in rabbinic leadership so is just as much uh, we, well we like to believe in a concept called as the generations move further away from Sinai we get weaker and weaker so uh, so rabbis are weaker today too I'll be the first one to admit we're talking about spiritual weakness um, so even though you might not like the rabbi or the judge in your days because this judge was appointed by the wrong guy or whatever the case was and, and they you don't think they know as not much as the judge of in the old days when you were when you were young, <coughs> still the Torah is telling you it doesn't make a difference. You need to go to the judge. You have to treat them. Every judge is once he's appointed as a judge. Obviously, we're not talking about a corrupt system. That's a different story. But in a in a uh, serious justice system, we're not a not a corrupt system. So you have to listen to the judge, whether you like it or not. Is um, the judge and the Kohen separate per people here? Yes, yes. That's what so I why do they Cohen, say you have to go to the Kohen no, for? Because again, in the first passage, it mentioned two things. It mentioned. Tzarat, and it mentioned judgments. So the judgments, you go into the judge for monetary, capital crimes, etc. All those type of stuff. Um, for uh, disputes. For Tzarat, you go to the Kohen. Yes, That's the Kohen. Yeah, you get to go to right, exactly. city yes, or the, uh, Put in isolation, exactly. So then, so there's the Kohen and the judge. It's two different... This is covering two different situations. Right, but you might not like the Kohen. Again, the Kohen and also, right. as we know, the Kohen Gadol became, uh, in later years, became a political position. And it was also people who weren't happy. Who's this guy? Trump. You know, whatever the case was. So, so, right, so, Trump so, Trump going up. President Trump is the going up. So, so the point being is you, you need to, the Torah is telling you, it's, it doesn't make a difference. You got to go to the judge in your day. Whether you're happy with him, you don't like his political leanings, you don't like it. He is, at the end of the day, he's the leader you got, and they make the decisions. And it's a ab- biblical obligation to listen to them, as we're going to see. And he will tell you the words of judgment. So the Torah is setting up a system of justice here, and you have to respect the justices, whether you're happy with them, whether it's a witch hunt, whether it's not a witch hunt. This is the justices, and you need to respect them. Okay? Whatever they say, whatever they rule. And it goes on to say, This is, again, key words here. And by the way, Rashi says specifically what I'm saying on the last verse, that even if you don't like them, you say, well, this guy can't compare to the judge of the last generation. It doesn't make a difference. He's not as a big Tamil Chacham. That, that's irrelevant. As long as they are, this is what you got in your generation, Torah says this is what you got to go with. Um, unfortunately. says verse 10, and you need to do it's a biblical <coughs> obligation, it's a, one of the 613 commandments, to do according to the word they tell you. So if the judges rule X, you got to do X. Um, Hashem, in that place again that God has chosen on the Temple Mount, this is the mitzvah say, it's a, a positive commandment to do as they instruct you. So you're stuck with those with the judges ruling. This is all assuming that the judges are following halakha. Because if you're uh, not dealing with a judge that falls within halakha, then you can reject what their judgment is. Is that correct? Well, let's see. That's a good question. Let's see the next verse. Because that kind of flows, throws a bunch of... Technically, you're correct. I'm ready to throw lots of wrenches. No, okay. see, the verse throws a wrench. Yeah. Let me show you. No, oh, good. So, uh, so, the, so it says like this. Verse 11, it says, According to the law that they instruct you, and, and that would imply, like Ron's saying, of course, obviously, 
we need to have judges who are Shomer Halakha. If they're ruling, you know, if there's someone who doesn't believe in the Torah or doesn't believe in the, the Torah is given at Sinai and they're just making up their own laws, then of course... No, I guess what uh, I meant to ask is this is not a civil judge. This is a religious judge within Jews. Oh, of course. Yeah, well, everything is religious mm-hmm. okay, but in the Torah. Yeah. So this just has to do with... Even what I'm saying, in what's amazing about Judaism or... No distinction. Or, or not, or not. Right, there is no distinction. Meaning, even a, a tort case is judged by by this is by when you're living in a land yes. when those judges are your like yes. as opposed to America, where so we that's don't. Not live. so simple. There is seems to be, I, and I, I don't want to go go there today. But there's there is even in America, even technically, we. So I don't want to get to Sharia law and stuff like that, but. There is a concept, even as long as both parties, agree, meaning should agree, that's halachically, you're first supposed to go to Betin prior to uh, a non-Jewish court. Um, and it's, it exists today. Uh, um, in Houston, there's no tort court, but I'm saying in other places, in big Jewish metropolises, there are Batininim that deal with business law, and they, you come to them, two people, two partners are having a fight, they'll go to that Betin. They both sign an arbitration agreement. It's, it's actually legally upheld by the by the, by the, the federal government. The circuit rabbi will come by and do tort, won't he? What? But the circuit rabbi will come by and do torts. No, we need technically need a bet to do torts, but I know you had a case. Right, yeah. He, Shelley went to bet once for one of his employees. Mm-hmm. Took him to bet. So, so technically, officially, the halach is you're supposed to go to bet If one party doesn't agree, then you have no choice. You have to go to civil court. Um, but ha- it really, there is a prohibition of going to civil court technically for two observant Jews, technically speaking, but doesn't, I don't know if it's taken from here, I'm not sure, honestly. Okay, but the, the most important, the most controversial part that I want to get to is the last verse. It says like this, according to the law, and according to the judgment that they tell you, you must do, and listen to these words, very scary words, you shall not divert from the word they tell you, Yaminu small, right or left. There's a lot of controversy about these words, um, even in the early authorities, discussing what this means. So there's a Sifri, and the, and the Talmud quotes it, it's quoted by many Rishonim, and it's brought in the Rambam, it's codified, which says that even if they tell you, the question is two things. One is you don't like their judgment, that really is said before. So if they're telling you you don't like the way they rule, that's tough luck, just like in any justice system. But what the Torah is telling you is, even if they tell you left is right, or right is left, you still have to listen. That's the way, meaning the Talmud says, it arises from the verse, it says, obviously if, if they're telling you right is right, of course you have to listen to tell you left is just because you don't like it. That we already know from the previous verse, you have to listen to that. So what the Torah is telling you is, even if the judge tells you right is left, and left is right, you still have to listen to it. That's what the that's Sifri not what says. It says, but okay. Well, that, that's the way it's understood, and that's the way the Rambam codifies it. So, again, it's very controversial exactly what that means. What does that mean? So they're telling you the wrong halacha, as you would be saying, or they're telling you uh, it's not raining outside and it is raining. You still have to listen. To it. So that sounds far out. Ludicrous. Yeah. They're contradicting the physical world, as it were. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Right, right is yeah. left, or. Or even telling you technically the wrong halacha, which, which that is the there is a whole chapter, by the way, which can happen. A judge can rule wrongly, just like a referee in a game can rule wrong. A judge can pass can wrong, but the Torah is telling you if that's what he ruled, unless it's appealed and changed, you still have to go with that. That's what it sounds like it's saying. I mean, just like an American court system, judge rules. You're not happy with a San Francisco activist judge. He says something. You're stuck with it, even if you think it's a unconstitutional. You can appeal it to the Supreme Court, but you're stuck with that ruling until the Supreme Court changes the ruling. So it's, no real, it's not so ludicrous, it's not so different than the Western law system, I don't think, in that sense. You're stuck with the ruling of the judge. Even if you believe he's 100% wrong, and even if it's, you think it's unconstitutional and it goes against every fiber of your being, it's irrelevant. You're stuck with his ruling. Again, if it's not a corrupt system. Um, so you could you have the right to appeal, maybe. There is a, a greater uh, Sanhedrin of 120, as opposed to how that worked and how the what appeal system... What you're describing, though, is different than what this fourth statement claims to be saying. 
in that interpretation. No, I'm saying is, let's say... Uh, you can the, disagree with a ruling. The activist judge in San Francisco says this is constitutional. Right. And everyone you in the country knows he's an activist judge, and it's unconstitutional what he's saying. But here... What he's wrong. What but we still got to listen to that judge. You go to jail if you don't I, listen to that judge. I, I agree. Yes. But that's not what you just said about the commentary on this fourth statement. Because <clears throat> what you said in the commentary is that you can that if the judge rules completely against natural existing things, like if someone said that this is wood laminate and the judge rules that this is concrete, you, based on your, the commentary on this statement, you're saying that you have to agree with the judge that it yes. is in fact concrete. Yes. What I'm saying but is like, I don't think you have to agree, you have to accept the ruling. Meaning a referee at a game says thing. it was a strike, and then we watch the video and it's not a strike. It's, it's fact, we saw the video, but we still have to go, if the referee doesn't change his ruling, we're stuck. That's, that's what we're saying. Obama it's the same says thing. a mandate, and Robert says it's a tax. <laughs> no, those are interpretations. Okay, but that's interpretations. I'm saying a, a strike. It's like a strike or a home run. But those a are foul. games. Those are not judges, like as in they real judges. judges. I mean, they can affect billions uh, of dollars yeah. of revenue. I'll, I'll let it go, but for, uh, it's, it's not a strong argument. I mean, you understand what I'm saying? But it's appeal. I'm going to let this one go because it's just not strong. It's, it's very controversial, as we'll see. It, we're going to discuss weak, it. It's just weak. Okay. Well, we'll discuss it. Okay. Don't, don't make any judgments yet. Okay. Oh, I'm happy to. Another three weeks. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay, so, uh, so, so obviously what's, there's major problems with this, not just Ron's problems, but there are other major problems. One is that, in general, basically what this is saying, well, for, first of all, to be honest, I just want to give an introduction here. The, the most authorities, majority of opinions, hold that this is only relevant to the Sanhedrin. It's only applicable to Sanhedrin. So that means everything post-Sanhedrin, which since the destruction of the, even before the destruction of the Second Temple, the Sanhedrin left the Temple um, and moved out, and they, they couldn't rule on certain cases. But, but the point is, according to most early authorities, they understand this mitzvah of accepting a judgment, the obligation to accept a judgment, is specifically on a Sanhedrin's judgment. That means you have to have 71 judges, has to be a sitting Sanhedrin in the Lishkar of Gazis on the Temple Mount. Anything post that, this doesn't apply to. But so, so you mean you no longer have to accept judgments from judges, or no? I'm saying you, yeah, you no longer have to accept as as it's like a biblical rule. I mean, it's not a biblical violation. Obviously, we have a justice system, mm -hmm. and as it can't be anarchy. But um, there, what it's saying is that this specific biblical obligation that you have to accept what they say, even if they're they're 100 percent wrong is limited to the Sanhedrin. But if it's limited to the Sanhedrin, why are we even discussing it? It's irrelevant. I need a, I need to give a class, so we'll discuss it. <laughs> um, so, but, but, but I'll tell you, no, so there is a minority opinion, and the Rambam seems to like that opinion, therefore it has, carries a lot of weight. Out of the 613 laws, oh, today only about seven, yeah. you can't even apply, so if you... If Not seven, well, well, so maybe 60% of them, yeah. Yeah, 70, not a yeah. lot. Yes. Because yeah, 100%. Many of them are only in the temple. So, therefore, so this yeah. might be one of them, according to many. Right. And, the, and the context, by the way, implies that. It's talking about you going to the place where God shows, which is the Temple Mount, specifically to those judges. So that would be the simple reading here. But the Chinuch, who is an early authority, and he is a student of the Rambam, and it would seem, and we'll discuss in a second, the Rambam seems to imply that also. It's referring to any, uh, any Shofet, not just the Sanhedrin. That's why we're discussing it. Um, so that means, what it means is, is if you have a Betin um, subsequently post Sanhedrin, who, who, well, sorry, no, I jumped in. I apologize. Um, that's not what he says. The Rambam, at least, says, the Rambam says that any ruling in the Talmud, rabbinic law, fits this category. That's what he says. Meaning the Talmud itself, he says, the tool, up until the close of the Talmud, it had this, uh, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, strength that all the rabbinic laws that are brought in the Talmud, up until the close of the Talmud, the Rambam Manli says, is considered, um, you cannot, he applies this verse, of losasim and adavash yigidul you can't go left or right. So as if it came and from the Sanhedrin. Is exactly. Right. So that's the Rambam's ruling. A little bit self-serving. Well, the Rambam is post-Talmud. He's saying the Talmud. I understand, He's but talking about Talmud. Post-Talmud, no, he doesn't say that. He's talking about up until the closing of the Talmud. So it means basically most of 90% of the corpus of rabbinic law from the Talmud that we have, that's what the Rambam says. It's not self-serving. I mean, he's, uh, and no other, and he, again, he's a minority. certainly his rulings. 
his rulings no longer have the power that the right, Talmudic exactly. I mean, but he he did kind of he, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, say he, but not. But according, according to him, right. what he says is really the Talmud. Right, anyway. right, exactly. Right. Right. He's just he's just summarizing the Talmud. But the point being is, so it's again, a so, so the, the self serving. <laughs> just a little bit. Just oh, a little bit. So. Um, <laughs> My money's doing his lifetime. No, no one Ronald's losing anyway. completely. So now the the that implies I had it. But thank mm-hmm. you. You're welcome. So that's why it's relevant because we do seem to be now. The, one of the theological problems with this is the Talmud itself says that all our our basic principle in, in deciding halacha in general is whenever you have a doubt in the biblical law, we go the chumrah. That means we're stringent. Let's say I don't know if I um, I don't know if today's Shabbos. I'm I'm in some island. I'm on a survivor, I'm in some aisle, they don't know the day of the week, so then every day might be Shabbos. You gotta keep Shabbos for seven days because Suffolk to Raisa, Luchumra. Okay, and this was, this was done in practice as we discussed once in Japan and during the war over the dateline. The question is when you cross the dateline. By the way, even today, if you go to Hawaii, there are rabbis that tell you you have to keep Friday and Saturday as Shabbos because it's over the dateline. So Friday is really a lachic Saturday. So whatever. So if you go to Hawaii, speak to me before. As long as you buy me a ticket, I can come and help you, advise you. Um, You'll go with us, right? <laughs> so, but, but that's a separate issue. Also, in Alaska, I mean, there's a lot of questions all over. In Australia, there are people who won't, on the west, east coast of, the west coast of Australia, they won't swim out on Shabbos. And they won't go to the beach on Sunday, sorry. Because once you cross, there's a, the halachic dateline might be there, according to some, and once you swim out in, into the water, it's now Saturday. No, you're at Sunday in Australia, once you cross the day line, it's Saturday. So if you sh- swim too far out off the beach, it's now Shabbos. And you're stuck there for the rest of Shabbos. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so um, there's this whole, so, so for example, why did I bring that up? That makes sense. The point is also, Suffolk do Raisa, Lechumra. Well, there has to be a day line somewhere, every, in any system, just like in, in the secular system. So the question is, where's the halachic day line? But anyway, the, the point is that, um, so, Suffolk Doraisa Lechomer, that's usually our principle. That means if you have a doubt about a mitzvah Doraisa, you go, we rule stringently. If we have a doubt about a rabbinical mitzvah, we're lenient. So, it means, let's say, I forgot if I made a bracha on this coffee, I don't make another blessing. If I forgot if I, any other rabbinical mitzvah, we, if you're not sure you fulfilled it, we, we, we are lenient. The problem is, so then, according to the Rambam, everything is biblical, because every rabbinic rule is really biblical law. So, then, you have to go strict on everything. So, that's dealt with extensively in the So Rambam makes a statement that the rabbis in the Talmud view their statements the same way? That they think what they were ruling had the power of... We don't know. I mean, they don't come the difference of opinion. It. We're saying the majority of opinions of early authorities understand this is only referring to Sanhedrin rulings, not rabbinic law. The Rambam is the one that says, and we'll read it, I think you have it in the sheet. Put it here somewhere. We could skip down to it, maybe, if it's here. Um, yeah, uh, well, let's get that in a second because I don't want to jump in. But the rabbis themselves did not view it as their rule. No, no, the rabbis are saying they did. But, the, and but, the other but they never commented in Talmud yes, as a, exactly. okay. As a matter of fact, the Talmud is the one that makes its principle. The rabbinic rulings, you can go lean. The question is, really, every rabbinic ruling is a biblical ruling, according to the. So you're so stuck. It's a catch 22. Yeah. According to the Rambam. So there are many answers to how he answers that, etc. Meaning, so I'll just give you the simple answer once we're here. Is the, the the answer I remember actually offhand is that meaning we if it's a biblical law, it's question a doubtful biblical law. So then of course you're strict. This yes, it's a the biblical law here is not the meaning. So let's say like we said, uh, is today Shabbat? I don't know. That's a biblical law, Shabbat. So therefore, if I'm in Hawaii, I have to keep two days maybe because I don't know which day is Shabbat. Or if I'm in the Survivor and I don't know, I forgot what day of the week is. So every day I have to. I can only do what's because never. That's Allah and Shalom. Hopefully, it should never be relevant. You your fence differently. No, I'm saying every day. Fence. Meaning, if you're in a, you 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 don't have your, you're in your on an abandoned island. You don't know which day is Shabbat. So the Shalom says. So every day, you could only do work that you need to live. Which so is basically check. everything when you're. Yeah, I'm saying right. So you had to eat. If you need to eat, you know, if you're starving. I'm saying you had not eat a lot yesterday. Technically, you can't eat today. I mean, yeah, you could eat. I'm saying you can't pull things off trees. You can't harvest. So all the laws of Shabbat, every day of the week, you can only do what's pikoch nefesh, because today might be Shabbat. So uh, um, and in, in, when the Mir Yeshiva was in Kobe, Japan, they had this question of the International Day Line, and they kept two days of Yom Kippur. 
Um, they, they, people that fasted for two days <laughs> straight because they didn't know when Yom Kippur was. So it's, it can cause a lot of problems. Don't travel too far. Um, the, the, the point is like this. So, so, so again, just to answer the question on the Rambam, I don't want to get too far off tangent, is when you're violating this law, the way they explain it, is you're, only, you're not violating the original biblical law. So let's say it's a rabbinical ruling said, let's say, making a blessing. So let's say that's rabbinical. So I'm not sure. So when I don't say my blessing, I'm not violating. Uh, meaning, this law is different. This is saying, there's a new law called rabbinic law. Listen to that. But it's now not a doubt, obviously, about this case. It's, uh, whatever, it's complicated. It's, not, it's called a svek sveka. So that's not called a biblical doubt, even because since the law you're addressing is rabbinical. But it's already, there's Thank whole, you for that clarification. There's whole books written on this, on this question alone. So, but, but in any case, um, so, let's, so I want to move down now. The question really for us is, so what about science? So this is very nice. This is telling you in halacha. So there's a rabbinic ruling, today's Shabbat, this is the date line. That's what happens when you have, as we know, and we've dealt with this extensively over the last 20 years, which is um, many times the Talmud will discuss medicine. All the Talmud will mention some other scientific fact, which doesn't fit with contemporary science. Mm-hmm. Um, or it wasn't done by the scientific method, the, their science. Okay, so is that fit under this guise or not? That's the question here. Meaning, when the, to- when the Talmud, let's discuss Talmud for a second, because the Torah really doesn't discuss science, it's more in the Talmud, um, although you have creationism in the Torah, which is a whole different story, we're not going to go there. Um, the qu- that's the question. When the, when the Talmud says either medical fact or scientific fact, and it's basing halach on that many times, as we know, halach is based on the medicine, um, and we'll see many applications to that, and we have seen many applications, but we'll discuss specific ones. So then, and it doesn't fit with contemporary medicine or contemporary science, is that considered Torah too? Do we say, listen, it says, the Torah says, even if they're telling you left and it's right, you gotta go left. Okay? If they tell you this is left and right, you still gotta listen. That's what the Torah seems to be saying here, according to some. So how does that work? That means even if there's science, do we view the science of the Talmud also as Torah and therefore fits under this heading of you have to listen to them no matter what, even if their science is wrong? Or do we say no? The science was science and they got it wrong. They were going with the science of their times and therefore they got it wrong and therefore that's not Torah. Because how do we view the science discussed in Talmud, basically? That's really the question on the table. And, and we're going to have at least four different opinions. So, um, so but, but that's really the question. Does that make sense? question make sense? Yeah, but I want to ask you a question. Yes. You know, when... Question you, on the question. When, yeah, Stein Saltz Talmud, and, and if, if you're reading, I mean, because if you're studying it, 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 there's the Hebrew, and then you have what Steinsalt interprets that, and he brings in a lot of things. And often you may have a huge paragraph. One line is to- is really Talmud, and the rest is Steinsalt. It's commentary. Com- well, it's it's his basically commentary, yeah. his commentary. Yeah. And I, I just saw a thing where he presented stuff. It's hard to understand him, and so it's yeah, he's always he, brilliant. Yeah, after, yeah, I know. After about an hour, and he said he didn't want to be in his life. He didn't want his life just to be the Talmud. He's, he's done other things, but that, you know, everybody does Right, so, what, so what's your question? The question is, all the things he writes, I mean, are basically uh, not really part of the Talmud. Right, so that's something else. I mean, again, the Maimonides, even Maimonides, who's, as we're saying, the, the minority opinion here, only says, till the close of the Talmud, this is applicable. In other words, if you have a, your rabbi gets up and gives a sermon today and says, vote for whoever, I mean, that's not Torah, you don't have to listen to it, I mean... I'm not telling you not so to listen to your rabbi. I'm saying it doesn't fit. It's not a biblical prohibition not to listen to that rabbi. Again, this is specifically discussing up until the close of the Talmud. Even Maimonides only applies it up until the close of the Talmud, as this under this heading of you have to listen to it. Um, after that, it's a free for all. But that's the minority opinion, and the majority Maimonides is minority opinion. Yes, so the majority says this is Sanhedrin only, so as, as the context implies. Right. But Maimonides is a pretty, pretty big uh, fellow. He's all right. So in this context, when we're considering now, for our purpose of our discussion, statements, scientific statements in the Talmud, which, uh, and by modern, uh, according to modern thinking, is really ridiculous, or we're discussing contemporary judgments, which we may think are ridiculous. Are we dealing only with Talmudic statements regarding medical science? 
Yes. Are we generalizing? At least we're starting with that. It's more we're or less. Starting. All yeah, right. I'm so saying we'll start with that's that. That's what we're considering now. Yes. Um, so we're going back to the top. The yeah. Commonwealth, which is when basically that's the corpus of rabbinic law. So most of, there's there's very little after the Talmud. It's just application. Most of the laws after the Talmud are application of those rabbinic laws to c new questions, but um, I mean new cases. But they're just applications. They're not. No one. There's no really after the Talmud. There's no law invented. Very little law invented after the Talmud. Talmud was once the Talmud was closed. There's interpretations. Yes. That there is different interpretations, as you'll say. One authority, Rambam, will interpret the Talmud this way. Another authority might interpret the Talmud that way. So, but that's interpretations of the Talmud, and that's a different question: who's right? How do we decide whose interpretation is correct? But that's a different question. But as far as the what we're saying here, this the teeth that the Torah is giving, according to Maimonides, the rabbinic law, that's the question is only up to the close of the Talmud. Okay. So, so now the question. You're saying there's no new halacha. There's just new interpretations. No, well, new applications of the halacha. All right. Really, um, the the point is like this. So again, we're not. This is not even the class. I mean, this is not what we want to discuss. We want to discuss the real question: is what happens when you have a contradiction with the Torah and science, or with the Talmud and science? Do we have to view the science of the Torah or the Talmud as Torah, or is that just? Uh, um, well, obviously, in the Torah itself, we have a problem because if you say. God invented the world, created the world, and he's telling you science, and he can't say he doesn't know what he's talking about if he wrote the Torah. That would be a theological problem. That's one of the big questions with evolution and, and creationism. How do you judge? Well, like the pig being a unique character. Well, that's clear. It is. Right. I was saying, but God, right, theoretic, God, God knows right. that there's right. no so other, created them all, so he knows this so, one's unique. So, but you do have, but it is a question, as we know today, especially in Texas, um, where you have, uh, where, where questions do you put do we talk about creationism or whatever, the intelligent, what's it called, intelligent design in textbooks or not? Um, a few years back, I was consulted by the president of the ADL. Who actually, I consulted her. I was very upset because the ADL sent three rabbis down to Austin to fight against including artificial intelligence, uh, not artificial intelligence, intelligent design in Texas textbooks. To, to, there was a committee in the state senate, and uh, I read in the Herald Voice that ADL made sure that that Judy's Jew, the Jewish view is we believe in evolution. That's what they were fighting for and don't include it. They don't want, Judaism doesn't want intelligent design included in Texas textbooks. <laughs> so I called her up and I met with her with another rabbi in town and to argue the point, like, we, who are, first of all, who's the ADL to decide what Jews yeah, when they become are Jewish? <laughs> yeah, so that's that's number one. Second of all, that's not the Jewish view. You're wrong. So we had it out. I mean, it was too late at that point. Irrelevant. Anyway, in Texas, it's going to be in there anyway, no matter what the ADL says. <laughs> so it's irrelevant. Thank God for it's really a moot point. Right. <laughs> but the bottom line is, um, why did I go there? I forgot. But th th so that's a whole. Di we're not going there, and that's a whole different question. Um, we're not going to discuss that. It's not medical. Could define it as medical, maybe. But I want to discuss really. There was, as we know from our history of this class, many, many cases in the Talmud discuss medicine and other science, and many times they contradict contemporary science. Although, I must say in defense of the Talmud, that we have found, I would say, in my opinion, and I don't know if Ron would agree, or you would agree, or anyone would agree, the majority of cases that we have discussed actually seem to have been proven medically, in, mo in many of the cases. I mean, they do drive with medicine. Um, you mean like eating fish and meat on the same we'll plate? We'll get to that, we'll get to that. But, uh, but, but uh, that is, uh, that's one of the good ones. But we know, as we know, we discussed in the past. There's a whole. I just want to know there's that a whole. Uh, um, I told you everything could be answered, and it, and actually, this guy does bring sources or for like, that medical. Or like cheese, medical journals, or right? like cheeseburgers, how that destroys right. your stomach. Never said, no one ever says. It doesn't say anywhere in the Talmud that cheeseburgers destroy your stomach. Well, they're not healthy. That's total fiction. It doesn't say that anywhere. Okay. Anything about kosher being healthy? That's all modern day. That's true. People. Okay. Um, so the fish and meat will stick. Yeah, fish and meat. But I do have an article here, by the way, that does explain it scientifically. Um, fish and meat, because that's a separate issue. The point is, we I found, as, in, as we know, there's even a whole book written around 100 years ago from Dr. Preuss, around 600-page book that goes through every um, Talmudic discussion of medicine and shows the sources. But he wrote that 100 years ago. 100 years ago in Germany. This is before, like, medicine Yeah, but I'm saying whatever started based on the... Modern other, medicine. Yeah. Hundred years now, they're gonna look at what we say and they're gonna say, this oh, no, years I'm not ago, claiming that we're any more advanced necessarily. What we may know one percent more, but I mean, 
a hundred years ago. Yeah, I'm just saying he. They didn't have bring, anything, and he still proved many of the things. He discusses it. He discusses all the diseases mentioned and what they are, and tries to explain it medically. It's a great work. You've, you've seen it. You have. Oh, yeah, I've got. It. I've read some uh, parts of it. I like it. Um, it's called Talmud and Medicine. You ever wanna? Okay, so let's so let's begin. So um, so first of all, what are the concerns just in general with science? Um, so, so I mean, as we're going to see, of course, there's many different opinions. This is a Jewish topic. So be many different opinions, even the early authorities. So the first one I brought here, someone known as the Rivash. It stands for, that's an acronym for Rabbi Yitzchak Parsheshet. lived 14th century Spain, Algeria. I happened to have his book. I, didn't, I bought it like this, so don't, get, don't think I've studied. So I don't think I wore it out like this. So this is his book. It's a book of responsum. Um, very small letters. And... Um, this first responsum was about, let's make sure, this is, the, oh, this is one of the famous ones which I think we discussed. This, this he's discussing here the issue of um, the famous question, which we discussed many, many years ago, of the Talmud seems to imply that a preemie, eight-month, an eight-month preemie has a better chance, of, or a seven-month preemie has a better chance of surviving than an eight-month preemie, right. which scientifically doesn't work today. But in their days, it seems like empirically they they saw that, and so that's what's discussing here in this response. Someone asked him a question about that issue, and again, this is 14th century, so a long time ago. And within the context of the response, he, he begins right away with an introduction, and he says like this: He says, "We do not judge the laws and mitzvot of our Torah based on the words of scholars of nature and medicine." As this guy was saying, my doctor tells me that this kid's going to live, even though he's born in the eighth month, and he's fine. So, so how does it work? Can I, do I consider him a trafe or not? That's whatever the applicable laws to that question. So he says, to start with, he says, we do not judge the laws and mitzvot of our Torah based on the words of our scholars of nature and medicine. Were we to trust their words, we would say that, God forbid, Torah is not from heaven. That is what they have said with their analysis. Something else. That's it. Oh, you, you, you don't have one? Yeah, this is for... Sorry, <coughs> speak up. It's English. We're doing English today. Oh, no Sorry about that. Were we to trust the word, we would say that God forbid Torah is not from heaven. That is what they have said, what they have said with their false signs, it's referring to medicine and scientists. If you would judge in trefot based on medical scholars, you'd receive much reward from the butchers. That's a cynical line saying, you know, everything, a lot of uh, things depend on money, as we know today, medicine too, and science. Many things depend on who you funded from and who your studies funded, etc. And which pharmaceutical pharmaceutical is pushing that drug or whatever the case is. So, so he even in the 14th century, it seemed like they had a problem with pharmaceutical companies. Um, so he's saying the butchers, meaning that this is basically a very important law, which we'll get to in a second. Which is there's happen to be studying this right now. There's a whole tractate called Chulin. In that tractate, there's probably one of the hardest chapters in all of Talmud. It's called Elu Trefot which deals with, there's a biblical prohibition in the Torah, even if you have a kosher species of animal, and it was shafted properly, it was slaughtered, if that animal was terminally ill, after you slaughtered it, and you, saw, you see there's, let's say, growth on the lungs, or the, had a, a hole in its skull, and the brain, and there's a whole, there's, there's a list of, I believe, 18 trefot in the Mishnah there. 18 terminal illnesses in mammals, um, and some birds, and if an animal has any of these, either while it's alive, if you see it before you shecht it, or afterwards, it automatically has to be sold as non-kosher, you cannot eat. This is one of the reasons we have also, if you ever noticed, uh, on the meat, uh, many times it says glat kosher. Glat is, uh, we translate it as strict, everyone's, but it really doesn't mean that. Glat means smooth. What it's basically telling you is one of the main things we check for today, one of the most common uh, problems in mammals today is uh, growths on their lungs. Especially, actually, believe it or not, I believe it, it's not hard to believe, but I've seen in Houston, in the Houston metropolitan area, if there's farms around the area, basically 90% of animals have uh, lungs that are mush, I guess, because of pollution and uh, whatever it is, the petrochemicals in the air. So this is what we're breathing in, but I've seen it literally with my own eyes. I mean, again, not an experiment, not a scientific experiment, but we've uh, brought in a show to me, and I mean, we couldn't find one kosher animal. <laughs> They shot like 12 in a row, and we had to give them all back to the farm, sell them back to the farmer. 
Um, this, is with, this is with cattle, with goats, everything, sheep. Um, so, so one of the main things they check for, at least in these in the United States today, one of the only things they check for is after they check the animal, they check that the lungs have no growth. In. So Allah is really, if really the, the, what makes it a trefa is only if there's a hole in the lung. Okay, a basically means it's terminally ill. That means the Talmud says it will die within 12 months. This animal cannot live longer than 12 months after it acquires that disease. Okay, and the Talmud's saying, these are the 18, list of 18. Uh, again, just to finish my glot thing. So glot means the lung is completely smooth. That means it has no growth in it. Because really, it's only trafe if it has a hole in the lung. So the way they do it is, you normally, halakhically, you can actually cut off the growth. And then what they do is they blow up the lung. They have a machine in most places. Some people do it by mouth. They stick it in water, and then you see if there's air bubbles coming out. If there's air bubbles coming out, then that animal is deemed trafe. You have to sell it sell it as non-kosher. But there, glat means that the lungs are, glat is, is a Hebrew word for smooth. means that lungs are 100% smooth, there's no growth, there's no scar tissue on the lung. It, it's That's just interesting, this yeah. definition, was. it sounds like it's relevant for your eating the animal, but uh, it's interesting that if you do not have a glat kosher animal and you're giving it as a sacrifice, there was a whole dispute whether God would accept it, and apparently not to embarrass the farmer who schlepped his cow, unbeknownst to him who had a hole or a tumor or growth in the lung, the Kohanim actually apparently at the last minute would still accept it as a valid you know, offering to God. Yeah, well, true, the truth is even in, in Europe, it's a very good point, I'm not, I'm not so familiar with those laws, it could be... Well, you taught it to me. Yeah. Okay, so it, it was a scene, a, a way of not uh, of discouraging farmers from coming with their flock to give mm. sacrifice. Like, if they, this could be their prized possession, and uh, they're giving they it to God, it. and if you reject it because yeah. there's a hole in That's the log, like point. it's. I never do it. But I mean, I did know it. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So it's interesting that it's okay for God to accept that, but not okay right. for us to eat. No, so, the, so the truth is, really, you should just know, even in Europe, there was no. I mean, it was a cancer of glass, but it's a hum, it's a stringency. In Europe, where a person grew up their cow in the backyard, and they, you know, they raised it, and if it wasn't glass, they you still, I mean, you, they spend the food. Right, it's food. But in, in America and in, in Western countries, in today's day and age, where we have some, where we could, only one out of, even today, by the way, say only one out of four animals are glass. It means that one out of four cows, and not even in Houston, in other places, no pollution, only one out of four animals are glass kosher. That means you're giving away. I mean, you're losing. That's why one of the reasons kosher is expensive. They have to sell that other meat, even though they had a shelter shechter and everything. They have to sell it as non-kosher. So three out of four animals are not. And it's a chumer based on what? There's different opinions in the shulchan aruch. The, the, the Talmud already discusses the concept, but it's a stringency, meaning you know, it's meaning you don't want to take any chances. There's a growth, the scar tissue. We don't know what was underneath when it came. Was there a hole that got closed up, or not? We don't know. But the whole definition, the whole HOLE was in the Torah? Where, oh, where so we're going to get to that. Well, trefa, so this, so again, sure. the Talmud lists, eight, the Torah says you can't eat trefa. And they have to trefa define literally, what is trefa. right. Now, yeah. we don't, the Torah doesn't define what trefa yeah, is. It's yeah. one of the proofs of oral law. Again, because the Torah just says don't eat a trefa. Trefa literally means torn apart. That's what trefa means. It means it's torn apart. Um, that means like roadkill would yeah. be a trefa. Right. So you have a kosher animal, you see it there on the side of the road, you, you can't... You can't eat that. can't eat that. Right. Okay. I get that. Um, so that trefa means it was attacked by another animal, that's another one of the 18 trefas. Let's say a, a bear, atta a lion attacks your cow. So even though it's still alive, the assumption is it, uh, it's going to die within a year. Then 12 months of the attack. Is it internal injuries? In those days they had no way of, of seeing that. All right, so that's the assumption. So, so uh, we're talking about roadkill. Very important stuff. <laughs> So, uh, Arkansas. what? Arkansas. Arkansas. Yes. Um, so the uh, so the point is so there's only a list of exactly those eighteen trefas, and we're not going to go into all of them. But many of them, and this was in the Mishnah. So this was again times of the Talmud. Many of those trefas today, into current medicine, we have cures for them that they live way past a week, or empirically we watch them, and you can have this animal living past twelve months. So how does that work? Um, or we have new diseases today, like, let's say, mad cow, that didn't exist then, which is a terminal illness that didn't exist then. It's not on the list of 18 trefas. So can we eat that? So there's a lot of discussion about that. And, um, and, that's, where, and that's what he's really saying here. He's saying if once you start relying on 
veterinarians to decide what's trade for now. And you're going to say, well, veterinarian, I took it to my vet, and the vet said this cow's going to live um, way past, well, it could live for three years. Says, so then the Torah is out, out of the window. You know, once you start changing, you're saying, then you're going to have you know, people doing studies and saying this disease, and you can't rely, he says, then the whole Torah becomes not from heaven, and so you can't change the law. He says, it's only limited to those 18 trefos, what the Mishnah lists, and we don't change that list. That list is still standing today, and that's the only thing we care about, those 18 terminal illnesses. If there are other terminal illnesses that exist today, they are not considered trefa necessarily, and if there are cures for the 18 in the Mishnah, it doesn't change the law. So this gets to the heart of the matter. Presumably God gave us the Torah. See, God can't possibly be wrong. That's a given. Yes. But now you get to the Talmud where you have rabbis commenting upon the Torah. And what this guy is saying in essence is the rabbis that wrote the Talmud, they're less corruptible, less prone to error than uh, Natural, the uh, then the yeah, scholars sure of nature. I'm not sure he's saying that, or he's just saying we're stuck with that list. And okay, but it. he's saying yeah. that's that's yes. in essence what he's saying. Even though they're I telling you right is left and left is right, they're much more likely to be right because they're less corruptible or speaking in the name of God or whatever than natural yes. scholars. Now that's not. I mean, that, that's a debatable issue, but yes, it's, it's not a, that's It's not an indefensible position. Hundred percent. Um, they, and so this this is one of the main things. Um, again, one of the main issues that this list of trefot. So just to skip down because Maimonides is also addressing Maimonides opinion is where he says it. And I so turn all the way to the back page, uh, number eleven, because we might not get there for another month. Um, <laughs> so number eleven, Maimonides says like this. He says, this is a quote from Maimonides in the Laws of Shechita. So he says like this: One may not add to this list of trefot at all. He, he lists the eighteen trefot in the Mishnah. He says, no one, you cannot add, meaning even there's, a, like we said, mad cow, mad cow disease, irrelevant. For anything that happens to a domestic or wild animal, to a bird, aside from those conditions listed by the sages of early generations and agreed upon in Jewish courts, which means in the times of the Talmud, I'll say, the creature may live. We don't know. There's a, new, there's a new disease. Just because the vets are saying this disease will eradicate your herd within 12 months, it doesn't make a difference. And even if we know medically that it will not live, the same um, meaning again, the vet or the doctor is telling you, this animal not, is not going to make it for another six months. He says it doesn't make a difference. It's not on the list. Or for all, and for all those listed, where they said it is a tray, for the things that are on that, the 18 that are on the list, even if it appears based on our medicine, and the Ramam again was a doctor, I don't know if he vet, that of these conditions are not fatal, and they could live, says Maimonides, we only have that which the sages listed. And he quotes this verse that we read from Al-Pasha. As Deuteronomy 17.11 says, based on the Torah, they will teach you. So we, we go with the Torah, the Talmud, that list. The Talmud is a definitive list. We don't care today's vets, what they say. They don't say it's irrelevant. So, you see, so this is where you see, by the way, the Ramam is saying, even the, what the sages told us, not just the Sanhedrin. This is the, one of the sources where you see Maimonides. He doesn't say it explicitly anywhere, but he's quoting this verse to say that we go with the sages of the Talmud, even against medicine. So just to sorry, be clear, first, I'm sorry. Uh, well, no, it, 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 this is, if some, if, if you know that it, if a cow has, or anything, has, has something that is also going to kill a human, you're not saving a life, you're, you're putting that. Oh, that of course, that's a different thing, that's dangerous. If it's dangerous to eat it, it's poison, it has a disease but, that might affect, so that's something else. He's just saying, as far as the halacha of trefa, the Torah prohibits eating a terminally ill animal. Most terminally, the animal has a hole in its lung, it's not going to affect you. Right, right that's, I'm just giving that as an example, right? So meaning not all trefas are dangerous to ingest. Okay, you're right, if it has a mad cow disease where the government tells you, uh, today's science tells you it's dangerous to eat it, of course you shouldn't eat it. No question. Um, that's not what we're discussing. That's a different law. You have to take care of your health. Discussed that a little two weeks ago. Here we're discussing specifically what fits the criteria of, of the list of terminally ill. Torah says, do not eat trefa. And the, and the Talmud defines trefa as these 18 categories. And that's it. He's saying you're stuck with those 18 categories as far as this law. If there's another problem with the animal, it's dangerous to eat. Of course you shouldn't eat it. You shouldn't eat red meat. Uh, and ever. That's a different issue. So to be clear, the Torah says you can't eat trefa. It's the Talmud saying these are 18 categories, and do they add that it's be we classify these 18 as trefa because, according to our knowledge at the time, we're saying these animals will not well, that's live. That's the question. So they're actually saying that, that they will not live for a year. 
Yeah, the Talmud says, so actually, by the way, it's interesting, because one of the signs of Talmud itself is, let's say you have a Suffolk trefer. You're not sure if this animal is a trefer. Says the Talmud, there's two signs for uh, One is, if it lives past 12 months, that shows you that it wasn't a trefer, and you can eat it. Mm-hmm. Talmud itself says that, that it's okay. If, if you're not sure if it's a trefer, if you know it's a trefer, at least my mind seems to be saying, tough luck, even if it lives past 12 months, you still... Right, it's considered a trefer. But let's see, you're not sure. One of the signs, I had a case, uh, I mentioned this many years ago in the class, maybe you remember, where my brother had ducks um, in his backyard. They were laying eggs, and eggs of a trefer is also kind of anything that could produce some milk. By the way, this is a fascinating question we're not going to get into, which is that we're saying one out of four cows today, are, are, uh, four, three out of four cows are trefer. Anything that the cow milk. produces yeah. is also trefer. So that means, how, do you, how can we drink milk? The milk is coming from a non-kosher cow. But you don't know that until you slaughter. Oh, so, so there's a lot of discussion about that. There are people, by the way, very strict rabbis, Rosh Hashanah, one of the Rosh who doesn't drink milk in the United States. Unless he he knows the animal. You know. He's probably lactose intolerant. It's fine. <laughs> that could be. Most humans He's are. for sure intolerant. I don't know if it's lactose intolerant. But he's surely he's intolerant. intolerant in general. Um, okay. But the point is that's a whole different issue. But we, what, just to join, what was your point again? Sorry. Remind me what you said. Uh, uh, Torah says trefa, the rabbis say trefa. Yes, yeah, so I'm saying, oh, so one I started telling the story of my brother. So my brother had a duck, a he had ducks in his backyard. He lived in Massachusetts. And uh, and he, the ducks, he would eat the eggs every day. They'd lay eggs. And at one point, it was like late at night, the duck looked really bad. Looked like it uh, didn't look healthy. And he realized the duck was dying. Duck. He was like laying down. It was whatever. It, was, whatever. it wasn't quacking. It was quacking. I don't know. So he brought it to a vet, like 11 o'clock at night, emergency vet, Massachusetts, I guess they have it. And uh, the, the vet took x-rays. There was a bobby pin lodged in its thigh. And it was infected. And the guy said he could do surgery for $1,300. Take out the bobby pin. <laughs> My brother said, it's okay. We'll, <laughs> we'll pass. We'll, we'll have uh, chicken eggs instead of duck. <laughs> So, uh, but he says, is there anything else you can do? He said, yeah, I can give it antibiotics. I mean, you never know. So the long story is, so he gave it antibiotics, took the duck home. Lo and behold, it, it was fine. Two weeks later, the duck was totally fine, laying eggs again, and everything was great. So but the question was, uh, the my brother called me up at the time, I had no idea anything about this stuff. So he, my brother called me, he said, the question is, can he eat the eggs? Because if the bobby, if the duck swallowed the bobby pin, there's two ways the bobby pin could have gotten into the thigh. One way is it sat and it got lodged in the thigh, so then it didn't perforate any internal organ. It's not a tray. Any, any internal organ that's perforated automatically makes a tray. Any organ, not just the lungs. So liver or whatever, stomach, if the stomach gets perforated, it's a tray. That's on the list of perforation. Perforation is one category of tray. So the question was, but if the duck swallowed the barbie pin and it perforated its stomach and it got lodged in its thigh, so then, then it would be tray. We don't know uh, so how the barbie pin got into the thigh. How do you Why? perforate the stomach and get Bobby to the thigh? Sure. It's a duck. I mean, it's not like a lunch. You know, the whole stomach is this big. I mean, it's in the, it's the bottom. It's the gastro-scalpel connection. You're missing. <laughs> I'm saying it, 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 it gets into a blood vessel, whatever the case is. Perforated blood vessel. I don't know enough about duck anatomy. I can't ask the question. The question is, anyway, the, the issue was, he called me, can I eat the eggs or not? Is how do I? He says, because he asked the vet, and the, the vet said these are the two options. Vet said, told him. The vet said, said that. The two, he asked him how it would have gotten there. He said, it can come two ways. So the question was, was it trade or not? So I, he called me up and said, can I eat the eggs? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> Why are you asking me? Um, <laughs> so I happened to be that the same rabbi that I asked the yellow question to. I met at a different yeah. wedding. And what did he say? And so I, 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 what happened was I met him at dark. the wedding. My brother called me up and said, I have no idea. I said, you have to call when this they rabbi. they said duck, they didn't really mean duck. So listen, so he, so the rabbi looked at me like an ignoramus. First of all, he said, what happened was I didn't realize my brother had already called him. So I, this was like a week later. He says, wow, I got the same question twice in one week. The rabbi was so excited. Same, same duck question. He's like, I never get this type of question. I got this duck question. So the rabbi said, he said, is it continue, if it continues to lay eggs, that tells you that it's not a trefer. That's one of the Talmud gives that as a sign that if you have a question if a bird is trefer, if it's a female bird and it continues to lay eggs, that's a sign that it's not trefer. So they apply that to milk as well? If it's continuing to no, lay milk, no, it's not no, trefer? No, only eggs. So only the point ducks. is, so, that, so that's what it's Allah and Shachanach. I didn't know it at the time. So Gemara, the Talmud says that. So the point is, so again, <laughs> there are, what, but what he seems to be saying, so if you have a suffix, Trefa, if it lives past 12 months, you could then, uh, you can then, um, you, it's not a trefa. But if it's a vade trefa, that means you, it surely was uh, attacked by a lion, 
Yeah. Let's say you're, and you're, it lives past 12 months. And it lives past 12 months. It doesn't make a difference. Thank you.